Good morning. Before uh, I get into what we're going to be doing this morning, I wanted to, to uh, pause and ask you to be praying with our church about something. Um, over the last few years, uh, the churches in Colorado Springs have been partnering with our city, with our mayor specifically, to tackle issues like homelessness and at-risk youth and, and how we can collaborate together on that. Uh, I want to call you to, uh, for us to partner with the mayor in kind of a different way today. Uh, you may have heard this, but about a week ago, a week and a half ago, his son-in-law was uh, involved in a pretty tragic accident where the driver of his car was killed uh, and the perpetrator um, of the other car, of the, of the other car uh, fled and was, was actually captured by police. Um, but um, his son-in-law, Mark Carla, is in pretty critical condition in Denver. And so I just wanted uh, to invite us to pray for him, uh, for Mark, and for Mayor Souther's family in this time. Would you pause and pray that with me? Jesus, we just sang that uh, you have a powerful name, and so in the power of your name, we humbly come to you. We ask for healing for Mark. We'd heal his brain and his body. We pray for direction for this family as they are making some of the most difficult decisions uh, they've ever been asked to make. We pray for peace. We pray for hope in this situation. We pray for a profound sense of restoration and even justice for all that are involved. And God, we, we bring these things to you as we just sang. We, we know that uh, you have no rival. We know that you also uh, get to make decisions about things that are far above our pay grade. And so we, we don't know what your will is, but our will is for healing. And so we pause and come to you. Will you bring this family to our mind, Holy Spirit, throughout this week that we can continue to pray as they... Uh, are brought to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege of uh, welcoming to you uh, my bride, Jessica. Would you welcome her this morning? Hello. Um, uh, we are going to share God's word together with you. I'm going to uh, teach some things, and then she's going to correct uh, what I've said. Pretty and much. We will have a good time. Um, how many of you have heard of John Calvin? famous theologian. He wrote an amazing study one time called The Institutes. It is regarded as one of the most influential works of Christian theology in history. The opening line to this uh, volume called The Institutes is this, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Calvin understood that you could be filled with theology, but if you don't fully know yourself, you won't fully know God. And the converse is true. It's hard to truly know yourself if you don't know God. Both require awareness. Now, we're in a series this summer called Table Manners, and we are learning to love one another at this glorious, diverse, challenging thing called the table. It's hard to sit at the table with people uh, because we tend to prefer to table with people that are like us, who, who value things we value, who, who sin like we sin, who don't sin like we don't sin. And yet God thought it was this great idea to bring all of us to this one table and ask us to love one another. And what we're learning is it requires more than just have more grace. It requires understanding, taking the time to truly understand one another. Uh, we would say this, understanding ourselves is a necessary part of spiritual formation. 
and understanding one another is a necessary part of learning to love one another. So what we thought we'd do this summer is we are studying nine historical figures, nine flesh and blood people who lived in history, whose stories are recorded for us in the Word of God, and we thought what would happen if they were all sitting at the same table? Now, our main text is the Word of God, uh, but it also helps us to place them, uh, as far as knowing ourselves, using a tool that we call, uh, that's called the Enneagram. You don't have to understand the Enneagram to hear from God in this series, but it is helpful to us. So last week, Susie led us through Rebecca. That's where Rebecca is sitting. And today, Jessica and I want to follow Rebecca's story in the life of her son, Jacob. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do Jacob today. So. I'm super excited that Thomas was wise enough to invite me to come up and share <laughs> about my number, which is the Enneagram 3, and we are using Jacob. I'm so excited about the themes and what, what no matter what you may be in the Enneagram and what we're going to learn from this story and how God wants to speak to all of us. But Jacob and Enneagram 3s are generally leaders, and so I'm actually going to put him at the head of the table, okay. and we're going to learn more about him tonight. Great. Uh, now, we saw last week, Isaac married Rebecca when he was 40 years old, but it was about 20 years later that they had kids. We're going to be in Genesis, by the way, Genesis chapter 25, if you want to turn there. Um, and even, so they were married for 20 years, and they finally had kids, and Rebecca found out she was pregnant, not with one, but with two, with twins. And she noticed that her twins were really struggling within her womb. In fact, uh, she asked God about this, and in Genesis 25, God uh, Moses records this. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. That's why they're fighting. Two peoples from which, from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And then he said this, the elder shall serve the younger. That's not the natural order of things. This was a promise. It's a, 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 an odd promise to her that she was going to have to see how is this going to play out. And so finally the day came and they were born. And the first came out all red, his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Esau sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for hairy. So that's him. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob's name is suggested by the Hebrew word for heel. He is the heel grabber. He is the one who's going to grab for what he wants in life. It's a foreshadowing of who he's going to be. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So what we thought we'd do today is we're just going to look at five snapshots from Jacob's life that give us a sense of kind of how he was motivated and maybe how we would learn to live with someone like that. Now, in, uh, in Genesis 25, they, they're a little bit older. In verse 27, Moses gives us some insight into this family dynamic. Listen to this. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Listen to this line. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Firstborn Esau is this outdoor type. He is doing the things that Isaac, his father, took pride in. Younger brother Jacob was a little more interested in staying at home, cooking with mom, helping her out. Now, Jacob is very ambitious, but he has figured out a way to use his mind to get ahead without getting his hands dirty. And here's an example of this. One day, Esau is out hunting. He's been hunting all day. He gets back to camp, and he smells something. He smells Jacob's famous gourmet chili. Now, after a long day of chasing game, nothing was more important to him than getting some grub. And Jacob sees an opportunity to win something here. He says, I'll give you some chili. I just want your birthright in return. 
Now, the birthright was kind of this agreement back then, a custom where uh, the firstborn son would get double of whatever the inheritance was. And so Jacob's saying, hey, someday when dad dies, instead of you getting the double inheritance, why don't I get it? Now, Esau's not really a, uh, a planner of the future. <laughs> He's like, what good is some piece of paper 20, 30 years from now going to do? I'm hungry today, so sure, yeah, we'll do whatever deal. And so for the price of a bowl of beans, Jacob has doubled his future fortune. Mm -hmm. Jacob already knew the calling on his life. And you'll find a common theme in Jacob's life is that he knows what God's calling him to, so he just helps that along. He's not thinking about how other people are going to feel or how it's going to impact those around him. He has laser beam focus on where he's headed and his calling, and he does whatever it takes to get there. Yeah. So that's one image. Now, we flash forward a bit to Genesis chapter 27, and in the first few verses, Moses tells us this. When Isaac was old, his eyes were dim. He could not see well. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old. I like that he had to like, inform him of that. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm old. <laughs> I don't know the day of my death, but it's probably soon is what he's thinking. Now, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow. Go out to the field, hunt game for me. Prepare for me that delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so I may eat it. My soul may bless you before I die. Now, Jacob and Esau are probably in their 70s at this point when Isaac calls Esau in to give him a blessing. If the birthright was a promise of double inheritance, the blessing is like this oral will. It's, it's telling him exactly, here's the land you're going to get, here are the possessions you're going to get. I mean, this is, this is the big one. Now, there's something a little shady happening here. Normally, this blessing would be a celebration event. It would be, gather everyone, get everyone in town. I want them all to hear this blessing of what I'm going to give my son. But Isaac's doing this in the privacy of his tent. Why? He knew of the prophecy that was given to his wife, that the younger would, uh, would lead the older, would rule over the older. Isaac is doing something here. He is scheming. He wants to make sure that what God said, no matter what God said, that his son, the one he loved, would be the one getting the blessing. But there's a flaw in the plan because while he's having this conversation, unbeknownst to him, right outside the tent is who? Rebecca. She's listening, and she starts to work on a scheme of her own because she wants to make sure that the son that she loves gets the blessing. So they come up with this plan where Jacob's going to dress up like Esau. He's going to disguise his voice. He's going to enter the tent with food, and they're going to count on Isaac's failing senses to make it all work. Now, I am sure that Rebecca and Jacob justified this act of deceit. Because after all, they're just helping make God's plans come true, right? Their ends justify the means after all. And this is where we see how differently God created us. So it, it, just think for a minute. We heard this story a little bit last week from the standpoint of Rebecca. But last week as we looked at Rebecca, it seemed more that she's operating out of fear. She is afraid that if she doesn't step in and control things, that they're not going to work out the right way. And this, this strength that she has of loyal love, when it's placed in God, it's a strength. But yet, when she puts it in herself, it becomes her weakness. Jacob seems to be motivated by something else, though. I want you to notice something. When Rebecca tells him, here's the plan that we're going to do, look at what his only concern is. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will, will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Look at this. Jacob's not worried about the deception. He's not worried about the morality. What he's worried about is one thing. Will we succeed? Will it work? 
Jacob and Rebekah believed this plan would win. God's prophecy would win. But I want you to see this moment. They're not really trusting God. This is a victory that they are going to earn themselves. Mm-hmm. An example of this in my life that Thomas really likes to bring up is when uh, we were first dating, and I already knew. First date. It was our first date. That's oh. right. But I already knew that he was the man that I was going to marry. So I knew, in my mind, I'm like, he's the one. There's no question. So I knew that's what God like wanted. And so when we played spades with our friends that night, I totally cheated because I wanted to win. And because in my mind, I thought, wow, if I win, then he'll think that I'm worth something, which is, again, a common lie that we believe mm. as threes. <laughs> Even though I cheated, I still didn't win. Yeah. So but you, you still married you, me. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I won. <laughs> hey, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, and, and what's funny about that is, is uh, I, I want you to see, I know her heart. In that moment, she's not thinking, I want to deceive my husband. She's just thinking, I want to win. How does that work? That's, that's the motive there. And so in this plan, it does win. It works out. Jacob receives the full blessing. Isaac is fooled. He says, I give you everything. Esau comes in ready for his blessing. It's his sad moment to find out it had already been grabbed away by the heel grabber. The aftermath of this deception, um, they won, but here's what happens. Esau now is set, dead set on killing his brother Jacob. Jacob flees for his life. Rebekah begins to learn the price of winning without God. She will never see her son again. Jacob is beginning to see that you might win without God, but you also might not be able to enjoy it. So he's on the run, and he runs and runs and runs to this place called Bethel. And in Genesis chapter 28, uh, uh, Jacob finally, he just, he falls asleep, and he gets this vision from God. Now look at the kind of nature of his vision. Just a quick snapshot. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached to heaven. The angels were ascending and descending. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, where you are right now, I will give to you and to your offspring. And this vision is telling him that God is giving him this land and and his children are going to fill it. It's going to be from the east to the west filled with his kids. Now, just what's interesting about this real quick is this. What kind of symbol do you give to a guy like Jacob who's always thinking about how can I win? You give him a ladder, ascent and descent, climbing up. People like Jacob relate to these ideas very well. As we looked into Jacob's life, I was not surprised at all about the latter. I, I'm also similar to Jacob, and uh, my job is actually in sales, which is no surprise. And not even just sales, it actually is promotions, of a legit ladder of promotions. And every month when I'm in unhealth, it's a way for me to believe the lie that I am trying to prove my worth in what I achieve. Yeah. So just another snapshot. Now, now, Jacob continues to flee, and he meets this man named Laban. But more importantly, he meets Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel. He wants to win her hand. He says, goes to Laban and says, I'd love to marry your daughter. Laban says, well, I have this kind of custom. I'd like you to work for me for a while. How long? Seven years. Seven years of working, and then you can marry my daughter. Now, at this point, Jacob is 84 years old. But guys like Jacob are driven to succeed at any age. And so he says, I'll put in seven years of work. They have the wedding. He takes his bride, still wearing her veil, off to the tent. They have their honeymoon. The next morning, he rolls over to see that he has not married Rachel. But Genesis tells us, 29, in the morning, behold, it was Leah that he had married. 
Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Thanks, Laban. Uh, Laban's like, did I not mention that? I thought I could have sworn I had said that to you. I tell you what, um, if you work seven more years, you can have Rachel as well. You can have both of my daughters in marriage. There's some poetic justice here. I wonder about, that. did Jacob see it? Jacob deceived his father in a tent by taking the place of his brother. Jacob was deceived by Laban in a tent by a younger, uh, an older daughter taking the place of her sister. I love this part because I, I hope that Jacob saw the poetic justice. Um, when you believe the lie that your worth is dependent upon your winning, you will do anything to win. And we see, we see Jacob doing that. But in this moment, I hope that he was able to understand what it's like to be on the other end of that, to be on the other side of the table when someone else is doing that to you and how maybe they aren't perceiving your emotions or what it feels like to um, be sitting across the table from you. And so I hope that he was able to really experience some health and some humility and um, some self-awareness yeah. in those following seven years. One last snapshot captures Jacob for us. In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is returning back to that land. Remember, God said, I'm going to give you this land. So Jacob comes back to the land, and he catches wind of this, uh, this uh, person comes to him and says, hey, uh, your brother Esau is waiting for you. He's got 400 armed men. He's going to kill you. Jacob knows, I can't win this fight. God had promised him, I will protect you. I will give you safe passage. But again, instead of trusting God, Jacob begins to trust himself. He can find a way to make this happen, so he starts to deal. He sends his whole family across. He sends a bribe to Esau, thinking maybe that will smooth things over. And Jacob was left alone. And then one of the strangest things happens in Genesis 32. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Somebody shows up, and they just start to fight. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob has been wrestling all his life, grabbing heels, making deals, and now he's met his match. He can't defeat this guy. Now, I don't know how many fights you've been in in your life. I've been in a handful of fights in my life. Most of the time when I've been in a fight has just been to, uh, me and the other guy going, okay, you, will you hit me? No, will you hit me? Will you hit me? And then there's one hit and it's over. This fight goes all night. And then the man reveals that he is an angel, not an ordinary man. And his supernatural touch wrenches Jacob's hip out of joint. And listen to what happens. Realization begins to sink into Jacob. I've not been fighting some dude. I've been fighting the God that I have followed. And he said, let me go for the day is broken, the man said. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men, and you have prevailed. Now see what's happening here. Even in the loss of this battle, Jacob finds a way to win. He's going to grab for the blessing of God, but he's grabbing something different this time. He's not the heel grabber now. In the Old Testament, uh, a, a person's name was linked to their character and sometimes even to their destiny, and that's how uh, powerful a name was. The angel says, what is your name? I want you to say it. I want you to confess who you really are. This is your chance to be honest with God. I want you to cry, uncle. Say it. What's your name? And Jacob confesses. He says, I am Jacob. I am a heel grabber. 
I rely on myself. I rely on my success. That is who I have always been. It's a confession. And this is the tension for people, I think, that are wired like Jacob. Do I live life in my own power, or do I do it in God's? Jacob, in this moment, is confessing this. He is putting his faith in the God in God, in the best way he knows how, and how does he do it? He, he says, I'm just going to hold on to you, God, to your representative. Upon this confession, the angel renames him. He says, you're no longer the heel grabber. You are now Israel. Israel means this, the Lord will fight for you. You've grabbed the heels of life, but now you have grabbed God himself, and God will fight for you, Israel. This is the most powerful story to me personally in the life of Jacob, and I can relate so much. Last summer, I, I wrestled with God, and it was kind of a perfect storm in our family. Thomas was in Ireland, and at that time, we had three teenagers in our home, and teenagers don't always make the perfect choice. And, uh, you know, one or two, or, or maybe all three of our teenagers might have been, not been making choices that I personally would have wanted them to. And when you are an unhealthy three, um, or you're me and you're unhealthy, um, and you are finding your worth in your performance. Children have a way of magnifying our insecurities, mm. at least they do for me. And I was so mad at God because I felt like I had checked all the boxes as a parent, even before my kids were born. And I was so angry that they were not making perfect choices, which is a whole nother issue, but um, obviously I have issues. Um, and I, I was so mad at God because I have, I have made all of these right choices. And when I'm looking at myself and my worth is dependent upon my success, then of course children are just another extension of that. And I'm so thankful for a God who loves me in spite of my issues, who pursues me in spite of my pain, and we, we wrestled it out. He, can, he handled my anger. He handled my frustration. He um, cared enough to address the lies that I was believing. And that's what you'll find in common of all of these, these names at the table. In our unhealth, we look to people and we look to things mm. to show us our worth that weren't created to to promotions, to people, to these different, oh, hold my worth for me. And, and that's not what they were created to do, and that's why it's a lie we believe. And I'm so thankful for last summer because God showed me that he wants to fight for me. And when you are a three and you are used to fighting for yourself, that is the most beautiful truth that you could ever hold. You can really see in this story of uh, Jacob, just, I, you know, one thing I, I want to remind us of is he, he had promises. His mom had promises. God said this will happen, but then it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And for how many of us have we believed in some promise of God and said, well, God said this would happen. I'm not seeing it happen. I, and, and that's the point where we, we begin to doubt. And the natural response for all of these people is when I don't see God, you know, coming off like I think he should, I'm going to step up and do it myself. And this is why these words are so powerful. The Lord will fight for you. It took Jacob 90-something years to learn this lesson. May we learn it a little quicker Please. than him. Hosea uh, summarizes something about this moment, and he says this. In his womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. Wow. In Jacob's immaturity, he grabbed what he wanted 
trusting himself in his maturity, grabbed hold of God, trusting God to fight for him. So how does Jacob sit at a table like this, and how do we sit with a guy like Jacob? As we've been talking about, I think that uh, Jacob would be uh, what the Enneagram would call a three, the performer, the person motivated by the desire to be successful. Um, And I want to mention this again. People like Jacob can struggle with deceit. Now, it's not being truthful. It's not trying to deceive others, but it's deceiving themselves, thinking, I need to be whoever I need to be in this moment to win. What does it mean to sit at the table? Someone like Jacob would probably sit at the table and go, okay, what does it look like to win in this table? Who do I need to be at this table so that everybody will whatever the definition of winning could be? So, but we need people like Jacob at the table. Yeah, we do. Yes. (laughs) Why don't you say something about that? (laughs) People, People like Jacob, we get stuff done. We are constantly thinking about the future, how to make things better. Um, We want to, we're winsome. I think we're fun to be around. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) Um, We have vision. We have vision. And when you you have a big project, when you want to change the world, I think Jacobs are a great person to have at the table with Mm. you. I love, uh, you know, that Jacob gets that vision from God, and it's a big vision. It is all the land, as far as you can, this is going to be yours. This is a big vision. Um, the thing about Jacobs, though, is sometimes they struggle with some unique things, and we need to be kind of sensitive to ways that they might struggle in ways that we might not. Yes. So um, it's probably hard to sit across the table from a Jacob. Mm. Um, you might feel pressure. You might feel overwhelmed by us. We can process things quickly. And again, we're always future focused. So, okay, well, this needs to be done and that needs to be done. And if you're not future focused, then it's way overwhelming. Um, We also, at least I can speak for myself personally, I have an opportunity to work on my patience as a three. And that's something that I know um, has been a great thing in our marriage, an opportunity for me to work on patience because I'm moving fast and quick and let's go and let's get it done. And uh, we also, I think, struggle sometimes to see people across the table from us. When we're always thinking about the future, it's hard for us to see the person because we can't give what we haven't received. And so if if I haven't received the gift of knowing God is going to fight for me and I'm continuing to try to prove my worth to other people, then there's no way I can see someone else for who they are outside of what they are accomplishing. In fact, when we, early on, when we were dating, I don't even think we were engaged yet, um, but again, I knew real quickly that he was the man for me. He said that he, he goes, well, I don't know if I'll ever be a senior pastor. And I was like, what? Like, that's the top rung of, like, the ladder that you're climbing. Why in the world would you not want to be a senior pastor? And it, it caused hesitation. I was like, should I really marry this guy? I mean, it only lasted, like, three seconds. When I found out that he was a Star Trek fan, that, that almost was a deal breaker, truly. It's okay, though. It's not even. Um, I, 
I was going to make a joke about how you worked for my father and my father for seven years, but then now it's not funny. It's not funny. Um, Maybe some Trekkies would think that was when, funny. But. When we sit across the table from, th so things I've learned to, 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 when I sit across with someone like Jacob, I, we always want to ask this question when we sit with people, what is the truth? What is the gospel they need to hear? Here is a lie that is a temptation for people like Jacob. Um, it's not okay to fail. And, and what I see when you talk about sitting across from Jacob, I, I don't think Jacob uh, looked at his dad and was like, I, he wasn't even thinking about his dad's feelings. He wasn't thinking about how Esau is going to react when he finds out that he's taken everything. In that moment, he's just like, yeah, I just got to make sure God's plan wins. And it's later he's almost surprised. Oh, my dad is upset. Oh, oh, Esau is angry. Oh, I'll never see my mom. Like it just was not on his mind because the lie he believes is it's not okay to fail. What the gospel he needs to hear, someone like Jacob, is this. You are loved for who you are, not what you do. Mm -hmm. So one thing with Jessica, I, I do want to recognize, uh, man, I see what you do. I appreciate what you do. But I also, it's easy just to fall in the trap of just always praising her performance. Instead, I need to, to figure out to say, I love you for who you are, not for how you perform. Yeah, I think a lot of times in our relationship, when there is strife, it's because I'm not hearing or feeling from him that he believes in me or he's supporting me. And there have been many times when he, he will say, Jessica, I, you, you do it all. Like, I don't, like, you seem so confident. I don't, I, it doesn't seem like you would need me to say, hey, you can do this because you are. And the truth is, in our, in our most unhealthy state, we actually might be one of the most insecure people at the table. Yeah. Well, if you find today that as this uh, story is developed, you think, you know, I really identify a lot with Jacob. Um, we try to find a verse for each person to maybe think about it, to meditate on. Here's a, a verse that might be especially true for you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, which I would say is very successful, if you are able to speak powerfully, and if you are able to use the language of angels, I don't even know what that means, but if you're able to just do this incredible thing, but I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just good to remember in your success, if there's not the core of love for God and for other people, if you're not seeing those people, your efforts can win, but it will be an empty, gonging, clanging victory. The love of Christ always leads us to humility and the interest of others. I've really seen this in Jessica in your journey. I know there was a day when you began in your career and you were really focused on being successful and you wanted to do that, but there became a shift when you started asking this question, how can I make the people around me successful? And that, that shift is something where you, I have I, seen you grow in your true care for others and how, how they are doing that. So. Uh, one thing that we're also doing uh, with a, not just a verse, but what's a practice, a spiritual practice for each of these people? At the end of this series, we'll put them all together. But for Jacob, it might be something called fixed our prayers. Uh, in Jesus' day, the Jewish community oriented their life around three specific times of prayer, the morning, noon, and evening. They would stop what they were doing and they would pray. The church has continued that in this thing called fixed hour prayer. Uh, it involves t taking set times during the day when you have this appointment. I'm going to stop here and I'm going to pray through Scripture. Um, you can actually, if you go to our text bulletin or if you go and get one of our sermon reflection guides, uh, you can find a link that will show you more about how to do this. Now, this idea of stopping to pray will really help people like Jacob, that sense of achievement, I can check the box. At the same time, stopping to pray can be very frustrating for someone who is success-focused because 
uh, it's interrupting their to-do lists, right? It's, wait, wait a minute, I have so much to do today, I need to get this done, but I need to stop and pray? Like, how does that work? I know that that's something you've kind of practiced in a sense with your morning times. Yeah, so for me, uh, being a heel grabber, last summer helped me um, believe in a God who wanted to fight for me. And I've always been a disciplined person who spent time with God every morning, but I would spend five minutes praying and then the other 23 hours and 55 minutes of the day, I like took the mantle back on myself of what I need to accomplish. And in my journey with wrestling with God last summer, he invited me to let go of kind of the frantic frenzy that I was in and to actually embrace a wonder-filled walk with him. And so now I'm learning the new rhythms of pausing throughout my day of having that continual conversation with him, not just in the morning during this time and then shut the Bible and put it away, but, but experiencing him all throughout the day. And when, when you experience his ability to fight for you, it allows you to then let go of that mantle of accomplishing and performing. And it's given me such an incredible opportunity to see other people in a new way as well. Yeah. So uh, as we kind of wrap up today, I, I want us to pray, but I, I want to remind us of this. Understanding ourselves is a necessary part of spiritual transformation. Do the work. Do the work. Understanding others is a necessary part of learning to love them. If we don't do that work, then we just keep trying to treat people the way that we think we should be treated, and we're not really learning to love well. So I want to pause with you, and I want to invite you to ask God this question as we pray. What is it from today? that you want me to ponder in my heart. We pause and pray that with me? Jesus, we thank you for the life of Jacob, for the life of Israel, who he became. We thank you that his journey is uh, a true and real one, and at the same time, we can find ourselves in his journey. What is it today from his life that you are calling us to ponder in our hearts this week? Is there something you're saying about us? Is there something you're saying to us about someone in our life that we may need to love in a more understanding way? Jesus, it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can truly love others the way that you've called us to. And we welcome you, Spirit, to help us love well this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.